Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February of 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet since April of 2014. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've lost about 100 pounds and I've completely turned my health around. And this show is a document of our experiences thriving for years in ketosis. Yeah, and reversing our diabetes. Yep. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? No way, no how. No. We've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them, and we share studies that we've found in the show notes. You'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. Sure are. We love to cook and we love to eat. Mm -hmm. And every episode, we both share a keto recipe that cannot, will not, shall not be ignored. Exactly. So let's start podcast number 116. Martin Sebis on strategic dissonance. Cool. So Richard, do we have any apologies or corrections from last week's show? Last week was Jason Fung, and uh, <laughs> I will never apologize for Jason Fung. That guy <laughs> <Yeah>. is awesome. <laughs> He's a big pile of awesome. Yeah, yeah he is. Yeah. So, yeah, nothing. All right. <laughs> I got nothing. So, let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is. Ketogenic diet is any diet that puts you in a state of nutritional ketosis mm-hmm. where you're burning fat for energy. The byproducts of those are ketone bodies. And uh, in order to get to that state, one easy way to do that is to limit your carbohydrates daily to less than right. 20 grams, and uh, moderate protein, one to one and a half grams of protein for every kilogram of lean body mass, and all our energy we get from fat. Fat. <laughs> <laughs> fat on your plate, fat on your belly. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so Carl, your audio sounds a bit strange. Yeah. Where are you right now? I'm actually in Seattle at, uh, at a hotel room. I'm, I'm here for Build. And uh, which is a Microsoft conference. I'm here as a software podcaster, but it, it's really early in the morning. It's like 2.26 Pacific time, but it's 5.26 Eastern time where I just came from. Yeah. And I literally <laughs> just got off the plane and, and went to my hotel room and we're recording this. So I'm a little groggy and I'm using yeah, the little punchy <laughs> headset microphone. It's not the usual studio quality, but. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, it's 7.26 here. And MasterChef Australia's first episode is starting at 7.30, and I'm very keen to see that. So let's hurry through this. (laughs) Let's hurry through it. Okay. So uh, my week was pretty good. We set up the website, carlsketokitchen.com. All right. And put up the YouTube videos from the live streams that we've done so far. Um, Hey, I want to give a shout out to my friends at Firefly Farms. This is in North Stonington, Connecticut, and they have a website, firefly.farm. They don't sell anything on the website. You can't order meat from them. But um, what's interesting about these guys, I went on a tour, Mm. and I got a couple pork chops from them with two inches of fat around them. Oh, wow. Yeah. They were amazing. And the quality of the pork was just so good. I I heard about them through my friends at uh, the Guard Theater. Mm. 
But then I find out they're supplying meat for RD86. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was getting ready to go live on Thursday, and mm. in walks Beth from Firefly Farms with a cooler. So, um, and one thing I want to say about their hogs is just fascinating to me. They're, they're black, and they're called mulefoot pigs. Right. And they don't have a cloven hoof. They have a single hoof. Hmm. So, let me read uh, what they say about their mulefoot hogs on their website. The origin of the mulefoot is unclear, and many theories have arisen about its links with mulefooted stocks in Asia and Europe. The breed is most likely to have descended from the Spanish hogs, such as the black Iberian pig of Iberico-ham fame. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they feed those on acorns, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're acorn-fed. And they were brought to America as the beginning in the 1500s. It shares some attributes with the Choctaw hog, C-H-O-C-T-A-W, and the two breeds likely come from the same ancestral stock, which was loosely selected and managed until the late 1800s. So these guys really care about the, the breed of their animals and where they come from, yeah. and, uh, yeah. and they, it's an all-pasture-fed, you know, natural farm. Nice. Great. So this isn't factory-produced pork? No, no. It's... Uh, it's farm raised. Nice. Amazing. So how was your week? My week was great. I just cycled 24K <laughs> to buy some fresh coffee beans. At <laughs> uh, a race home and now I'm recording a podcast. Yeah. Uh, so uh, on the weekend I went to Low Carb Sydney uh, and right. that's uh, an annual event. Um, it was a one-day event, uh, but it's done by the same people who do Low Carb Breckenridge, yep. uh, Low Carb Gold Coast, and yep. uh, they have an event coming up in a couple of weeks' time in South Australia, they're going to have an event at a winery. But wow. <laughs> unfortunately, the one I went to this weekend was uh, at Sydney University, which mm. is not nearly as much fun as a winery. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <laughs> the the food was, was spectacular. We had a meat dinner at JPS Meats, which is this restaurant that only serves meat. Wow. And we had like a massive big ribeye, a big chunk of porchetta, Oh, man. Wonderful. So I got to catch up with Peter Bruckner, who was uh, a guest on our podcast, and he's uh, helped us out with uh, the Obesity Code podcast as well. He has just released a book called A Fat Lot of Good. (laughs) He was the team doctor for the Australian cricket team until about six months ago. Okay. He's also been the team doctor for some uh, football uh, clubs in in England. Um, So he's he's a fairly famous sports physician. Yeah. Anyway, he's, uh, of course, a low-carb advocate. Uh-huh. Well, So he's got his new book out. He had a, a wonderful presentation on his Sugar by Half campaign, which is getting a lot of traction in Australia. Uh, also got to meet up with uh, Gary Fetke. Um, yeah. Gary Fetke, who was also uh, a, a podcast uh, guest twice on our show. Yeah. And he and Belinda came and had dinner with us in Breckenridge two years yeah, ago. Yeah, that's right. Um, and we did a podcast afterwards. And he is still being reported by dietitians every year, two dietitians report him to APRA, even though he's not um, practicing. And it's just a pro forma. They just want to keep him like a, on a slow boil with APRA. This ah. is the regulatory body. He's planning some things. I, I can't talk about him now, but uh, we'll uh, we'll talk about him in a couple of weeks. But uh, uh, he has some uh, some events planned, which will be interesting. That should be interesting, yeah. 
it should be good. The other thing is uh, we got to meet journalist uh, Marianne DeMarcy, who was a journalist who did a, an article. She was actually the National Press Club Science Journalist of the Year for Australia, two years running. Wow. So she was the premier science journalist in Australia. She did a article on questioning statins and another one she did a show when tim noakes and stephen finney were both out in australia on low-carb diets and she's unemployable as a journalist now wow she went from being the best science journalist in australia to pretty much she can't get a gig because she had the temerity to question statins this is insane what people are doing Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just doctors, it's also journalists that suffer this. I mean, some journalists like Nina Teicholz are just, you know, they're they're so so powerful that they can get above all of this noise, but some just get sort of overtaken by the wave. It's it's fascinating to hear from these people um, about uh, the uh, low-carb community because this uh, conference in Australia is normally, you know, two years ago I went to it, they had maybe 90 people, and then last year they had 200 people, and this year the entire auditorium was full. They had to turn away 30 people Wow! Um, from the, you know, this low-carb community is definitely growing. That's very cool, Richard. It's good to see that growing. Did you read David Ludwig's study on type 1 diabetes that hit the news this week? Yeah, it was in the New York Times, and and we were speaking to him about this uh, on the episode that we did uh, interviewing him. Mm. He told us that this was about to come out. So basically, he he did a study on people in the type 1 group. These are type 1 diabetics who go low-carb following Dr. Bernstein's advice. Right. And the article goes on to say about this study that it found that children and adults with type 1 diabetes who followed a very low-carb, high-protein diet for an average of just two years, combined with the diabetes drug insulin at smaller doses than typically uh, required on a normal diet, had exceptional blood sugar control. Yep. They had low rates of major complications, and children who followed it for years did not show any sign of impaired growth. And that's always yeah. been the, the the complaint. You know, they said, you know, if you feed these kids, you know, a low carbohydrate diet, they won't grow normally. But that, mm. in fact, was not shown in the results. Now, the study also found that the participants' average hemoglobin A1C, which is a, a long term marker of blood sugar levels. It fell to just 5.67% on average. And wow. A1C under 5.7 is considered non-diabetic. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's well below the threshold for diabetes, which is up around about 6.5%. Uh, so, you know, they, they still require insulin, but yeah. they require a lot less because they're not eating sugar and starch. It's really great to see the science coming out to support what we've just seen with our eyes, you know? Right. I mean, yeah. like our friend Ian Kelly yeah. A type 1 diabetic went keto, low carb, and mm. his blood sugar just completely evened out. Yeah. He ended up saving money on insulin, you know, or his insurance company did, I guess. Yeah, we also did a podcast with Beck Johnson, the type 1 superstar, who, right. is, who, who was doing like marathon swims and everything. And she's been ketogenic, you know, for, for many, many years and yes. low carb for 18 years. Yep. And uh, yeah, I think we have enough justification to get some high quality evidence we need somebody to put some effort we either the nih or the gates foundation or some uh, some uh, organization that's responsible for putting money into funding fundamental research needs to basically do an rct with type 1 diabetics um, because this evidence that we've seen shows that uh, that uh, there's something there and yep. type 1 diabetics deserve the top quality of uh, evidence basis. Yes, for, they do. For their 
treatment. Yeah. I hope that uh, somebody with some money puts some effort into funding Dr. Ludwig and doing that. Absolutely. Well, I think it's uh, time to give away some swag. You feel like giving away something? Yeah, absolutely. So, who have we got? Well, we're going to give away a signed copy of Lies My Doctor Told Me okay. by Dr. Ken Berry. Excellent. And uh, we're going to pick a, a winner at random mm-hmm. from the Two Keto Dudes Fan Club. And the Two nice. Keto Dudes Fan Club is easy to join. You just go to fanclub.twoketo.com, answer a few questions, and then you're eligible to win something in every show. Like I said, we're giving away a signed copy of Lies My Doctor Told Me by Dr. Ken Berry. And who's our winner? Today's winner is Aaron Ingram. Well done, Aaron. Congratulations. Yes. It's a great book. I'm currently doing the audible.com version of it, and uh, I'm enjoying it over and over and over again. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and if, if you don't want to wait to win some swag, you can always buy all sorts of swag online at gear.tukido.com. And that brings us to... So at Low Carb Sydney, I was asked by like a dozen people, when you go to the mailbox, do you go, mail? And I said, um, I hate to admit this, but I have a couple of times and it freaked the neighbours. <laughs> yeah, so I'll go first. This is from the forum and uh, somebody wrote in the newbies section, I'm so hungry. Mm. I've started this about 24 hours ago. <laughs> this is typical of people <laughs> who just go on, right? right? I'm so ravenous. All I want to do is go swim in a bowl of mac and cheese. Thus far, I've eaten six eggs, one pound of almonds, two pounds of salad, three chicken breasts, about a quarter of a container of peanut butter, and enough celery to hold the peanut butter. I'm ravenous. And I haven't even gone to the gym yet. I understand I'm supposed to eat fat. There probably isn't enough fat in the above things. I don't even really know where to get fat because I'm so used to (laughs) avoiding it all my life. I don't really want to chew on actual fat because it tastes like a garden slug. (laughs) (laughs) The only things I know of to get fat from so far are olive oil, avocados, coconut oil, chicken skin. And chicken Mm. skin's mostly protein. Yeah. He goes, these don't make for tasty recipes. What else can I seek out? Oh, I remember those days. Do you remember those days? <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah. It's it's not just like what you're eating. It's the whole mindset of why, you know, and what right. you're eating that you got to change. Yeah. The most important thing is to cut back on carbohydrates, uh, which you've mostly done. I mean, there is some probably some carbo- carbohydrates in the salad components that you're having. And if you're eating a pound of nuts, yeah, um, they all have carbohydrates. And so um, what I would suggest for uh, reducing the amount of nuts is extending them out with, uh, say, butter, for example. You can you can blend up uh, some almonds with some butter and you end up with a fattier – it's like you have almond butter, but well, I guess that's obvious, but it's a yeah, higher yeah. fat content than like a, a nut butter that you'd buy at a store. You know, so you want to get your energy from fats right. rather than getting energy from either protein or carbohydrates. And I would give up the chicken breast and oh, yeah. opt for some ribeye smothered in butter. And somebody mentioned that as uh, in the in the answers, you know, in the forum. Somebody m- answered that. Right. Just, um, you know, try to try to avoid a lot of, you know, lean meat. And yeah. go for the fatty meat and, uh, you know, what can I say? It doesn't sound like you're eating enough fat and, and you're only 24 hours in. So right. hopefully, uh, you know, we could revisit this, uh, 
person in a couple of weeks and see how they're doing. Yeah, give yourself a bit of credit. I mean, it's yep. going to take you about – I mean, most people uh, adapt to being fat burners between two and six weeks. For me, it took like five weeks. Yep. Some people just, you know, they jump straight in and they're, they're there. So yeah. um, I'm hoping that that's you and in two weeks' time you're going to be looking back and you're saying, what, you know, <laughs> why was I hungry? I'm, I'm, I'm satiated with this, with this eating. Yeah. The thing is that you're not yet good at – getting f- energy from your blood into your cells in the form of fat. Right. Your cells are really demanding glucose. They want glucose because that's what they're good at transiting into the cells. Yep. And in fact, after a day, you still have glucose stored in most of your muscles sure. and, and in your liver. And so you haven't yet uh, made the transition to your body accepting that its energy from now on is going to be coming from fat. And what you got to do is just be patient and get to fat adapted. Don't sabotage yourself, you know, with with sugar or starch. Just get to fat adapted. Once you get there, life gets so much easier. And bacon and eggs. Yes, and bacon <laughs> and it. eggs. Seriously. I mean, eggs and, and don't eat just the white of the egg. That's no. the worst part of the egg. That's you want right. to eat the yolk. That's yep. got all the nutrients in it and the fat. Yeah, that's right. Make some uh, bermonte and pour it over everything. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, make some royal omelets with uh, cream and egg. Yeah. And plenty of salt, put a bit of avocado on top of that, a little bit of bacon. That's that's a breakfast that's going to keep you going all day. Yep. Very good. So uh, what you got, my friend? Yeah, I've got one from the forum as well. This one is from Mirko, and he says he's transitioning to a ketogenic diet for an athlete. Okay. He just run his first marathon on fat. And he says, you know, uh, although I don't have a medical reason to lose weight, I have a couple of pounds to give away. And I started looking at what tips and tweaks were around maybe three years ago. I started with a a paid low-carb course by a German celebrity. Mm. Mirko's German, so um, his his English is is excellent, but Mm, you'll notice it's a second language. Anyway, he says, um, I heard more and more details about why carb is good and sugar and starch is bad for me. And since I started running again after having gained – weight while my wife was pregnant, um, I've always had this information about how important carbohydrates are, especially when it comes to exercise. Mm. So this inconsistency always made me wonder which side of the medal is the shiny one, mm. which I guess is he's, you know, he's, he's getting advice from both directions saying sure, you need yeah. carbs to run, but you shouldn't rely on carbs to live. And he's wondering which is true. He does say eating sugar and starch gives me a stomach ache, and I have generally lived a low-carb life most of my life. He says, I ran a marathon in the fall of 2016 as totally as a carbohydrate runner, trying to eat as many gel packs as possible and trying to survive the aching belly during running. Um, uh, and I was okay with the time around 4.40. 4.40 for a marathon is pretty good. Yeah. I mean, the best marathons, are, uh, you know, uh, runners run at uh, around about 2.20, but those are it, those are superhuman <laughs> athletes. Mm. You know, a, a, a marathon run at 4.40 is pretty good. He says, my trainer did a Spiro ergometry. So it's basically a measurement of your respiratory quotient while you're doing exercise. We, we heard the other day from uh, John Wright right about doing your respiratory quotient to work out yes. whether you're burning fat or, or carbohydrate. This is actually an exercising um, version of that. So, And he says that, um, you know, we did this to measure how much fat I'm using, but it wasn't that good. Mm. So my next marathon, I did about four 4.30, which is a little bit better, but I was still dominated by belly aching every time I took some carbohydrate gel in. 
And then he says, uh, in 2017, I started triathlon training, did a couple of middle distance runs, uh, which is, you know, 1.9 kilometre swim, 90 kilometres on the bike and 21 kilometres run. Hmm. Uh, he did that on carbohydrates too. And, and um, in the last tr- transition prior to running, so he's getting off the bike and he's now going to run for the final leg of the of the race, he'd lost his gel packs um, and he really suffered in the final discipline without his carbohydrate packs that he was used yeah, to. So right. he says, you know, and the thing is, the poor guy, he eats carbohydrates and his, his belly hates them and he gets belly aches. Right. Um, he doesn't live on carbs most times, but he needs them for the race. So anyway, during the off season, he listened to some of our podcasts and read some blog posts about ketogenic athletes and he decided that he was going to try doing some running at a slower speed, but totally fat adapted, absolutely no carbohydrates. And so he says, you know, it was hard, but I kept on going. And and together with the podcast, he he was actually listening to to the podcast (laughs) while he was doing his training runs. So uh, if you're out there, Mirko, g'day, uh, enjoy the run today. Um, But anyway, he says, uh, you know, I, I made the decision finally to start running on keto. And I did that fasted binge listening to the dudes on my headset. Yeah, right. And he says he's, it's going really well. He feels that going keto on running is no problem for him anymore. Uh, more than that, he also felt the clarity that everybody was talking about. Yes, yes. So his project keto marathon started for him, and it, he did a marathon last week in Hamburg and felt great. Um, but he thinks he might have to change a few things to be a fully keto-adapted athlete. One of them is cramps. Uh, he he did, did get some cramps, so he probably has to uh, take in more salt while he's running. Yep. If it's ketogenic, we know this, if you're ketogenic, you need more salt. That's right. And and he also says uh, that he used to drink uh, one or two glasses of wine in the evening before races just to come down and, and relax before the race, and those kick him out of ketosis at the last minute, which is probably not. <laughs> not the best thing to do so mm, mm. so he's going to try to stop doing that but anyway this to sum it up he feels great keto running he's happy during the run he's not had a single belly aching moment because he hasn't had all the starches yeah and great it's a little bit slower but he's uh he's working now on training to increase the speed you know i'd like to wish him the best of luck with his adaptation because uh that is outstanding outstanding well done mm. And uh, I don't think I will ever run a marathon. Maybe I will someday, but uh, I can't imagine myself running a marathon. I think I could imagine myself riding. I've ridden 100 kilometers in a day. Mm. I don't know what the marathon version of a ride is, probably about 200 kilometers. Yeah. But uh, yeah. All right. So let's get to the interview portion of our show. Mm -hmm. This was one that you did with Martin Sebis at Low Carb Down Under. Yes. So let's just roll the recording. I'm here at Low Carb Perth, and uh, this is my sixth podcast recording, and I'm here with Martin Sebus, and he did a fascinating presentation yesterday on strategic dissonance. Strategic dissonance, that's right. Yeah. So tell us about your story, Martin. How, how did you come to a low-carb diet? Well, I have type 2 diabetes, mm-hmm. uh, same, same yeah. as you, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, went to see my doctor, and the, the doctor um, had gave me the bad news that my A1C was 9. Mm. It had been lower, and it was suddenly raised, and the doctor put me on sulfonylureas, uh, right. micron. Yeah. And suggested to me that I look at my diet. And I, I, I said to her, well, I know all that stuff. I've been to see a dietitian mm. in the past. I've been on the low-fat diet mm-hmm. almost all my life. Mm. Um, a bottle of olive oil goes rancid in my house. Yes. It's how little <laughs> fat I use. That takes a long time. It does. <laughs> and, um, and, and, yeah, and so, look, I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't know what good I'll get from going to see a dietitian. Mm. And... Um, 
Um, but anyway, I undertook to look at my diet and mm-hmm. then I walked out to uh, to get um, my flu shot because in, in Australia you get a, a free flu shot yes. um, under, the, under the medical system. Mm-hmm. And the nurse said, um, are you on any medication uh, before I give you your shot? And mm. I said, well, um, doctor's just put me on Dimicron. Yeah. And she said, turned to me, she said, well, don't do this without talking to the doctor, but here you go. And she got out a yellow post note. I've still got it today. Right. <laughs> and she wrote dietdoctor.com. <gasps> wow. And um, and this was just the nurse giving you your flu jab? This was the nurse giving me my flu jab. Wow. So, so the, the, the doctor didn't, unfortunately didn't have the information mm-hmm. to share, but, but she did. And I, I thought to myself, well, it's probably not. It's probably not um, uh, one of these terrible sites that you often bump into on the internet that say they'll yeah. cure their diabetes and you go through yeah. uh, two hours of a presentation to be sold, trying to be sold some some dodgy some book. Some blender. Yeah, <laughs> some blender or dodgy <laughs> book. And, and I thought, it was probably coming from a nurse. It's probably legitimate. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's a nurse from my doctor. So mm-hmm. I went home and uh, I, I'm an engineer uh, originally by, yeah. by training. And um, What kind of engineering? Electronic engineer. Right, um, nice. Yeah. So um, I just thought, well, this kind of makes sense. I've been told to have carbs um, by the Diabetes Association, mm. but this actually makes sense. If I've got a problem with my high, high blood glucose, mm. why not remove the carbs that I'm eating? And I yeah. thought, well... It's contrary to what I've been told, but but I'll tell you, I'll give it a go. So the next day, I gave it a go. My, mm-hmm. my I call it my keto birthday. Um, <laughs> Do you si- remember the date? Yeah, sixteenth of June, two thousand and sixteen. Yeah, and um, mine so- was the twentieth of April in twenty fourteen. Wow, so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you you you're ahead of me. But yeah. uh, but what what happened was I was I actually um, found that my blood glucose dropped almost within two days yeah um as other people did but and then i actually went on a holiday uh, to to bali and and started my low carb so it wasn't super low carb to start with um and look the long the short of it was within three months my a1c dropped from nine to six um and um i was at that point had run out of metformin so it wasn't even on metformin yeah um Went to see my doctor and my regular doctor wasn't available. The doctor that saw me was a lot older. I think he was in his 60s or 70s and close to retirement. Okay. He, said, he said, you know, Martin, in my, in my entire career, I've only ever seen one other person with diabetes who's done what you've done. Wow, and I and I thought to myself, that, that's astounding. Yeah, you know? um, um, I, t- I tell you something. In my time since uh, doing podcasts and stuff, I've seen thousands. Mm. Well, I, I now know that's the case. Yeah, you know, you, um, there's plenty of plenty of people online that have mm. done what mm. I've done. So I'm not a I'm not a special snowflake, um, <laughs> as, uh, as some some people will tell you. Oh, yeah. you got did that? You must be a special snowflake. No. Um, so no, I'm not a special snowflake, but. You know that's my story, and mm. um, and then the the really odd thing was how that then parlayed into my past academic career because um, subsequent to being an engineer, I did an MBA, mm-hmm. and then uh, after that turned around to be a lecturer in technology and innovation and entrepreneurship for right. ten years. I lectured on uh, innovation, mm. and one of the cases in particular that I um, used to used to used to lecture on was. Um, uh, was about Barry Marshall. Okay, yeah. A- and his battle to get his very simple innovation mm. accepted, which in that innovation was, uh, if you don't know the story, was uh, Heliobacter is, is a bacteria. Um, gastroenterologists did not believe that a bug could live in the acid of your stomach. Right. And yet this bug did. Mm-hmm. Uh, he 
he theorised that that was causing stomach ulcers. Yeah. Uh, and he's here from Perth, actually. He's, yeah, he's he actually, is a local guy. He's a local yeah. guy. And um, he did a famous experiment where he drank he drank the bacteria and proved that it it started to cause the start of stomach ulcers. Yeah. He dr- he didn't didn't he extract the the bacteria from some, from a from a donor who had the ulcer? He did, yeah. So he yeah. literally drank some pus from somebody else's it's, stomach ulcer. Yep, yeah, that would turn turn a lot of people. But he, he, that's an end of one. End of one, <laughs> definitely an end of one. Um, look, the and, and and the long the long and the short of it is that um, uh, he had a. Although he he showed that this was um, likely the cause, and yeah. his problem was that the solution was a very uh, inexpensive solution in that you could just have a course of uh, out-of-patent antibiotics right. um, to cure a stomach ulcer. And that was contrasted against having your stomach chopped out yeah. uh, um, in um, uh, a, a gastrectomy. Yeah. Um, or expensive drugs for life. Or expensive drugs for life. And, and the parallels with... Diabetes are just um, too uncanny yeah. uh, to be a coincidence. Well, Barry Marshall went on to win the Nobel Prize for this work. He did, and I don't know. I think um, I think Tim Noakes has said that uh, Gerald Reaven, um, it would be the closest to win the yeah. Nobel Prize. Although he's passed away now. He, but, he is, but, yeah. you know, that's mm-hmm. – uh, but I think Tim Noakes says he just failed to probably make one – Big connection. I can't remember what yeah, the connection the carbohydrates. Is. He didn't connect with the carbohydrates in the diet, but True. he got everything else right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, so um, uh, this was a case I taught for 10 years. Um, Clayton Christensen, um, who is the, the guru of uh, disruptive innovation from Harvard Business School, mm. actually put me onto that case. It was some of his teaching notes that, that talked about it. And I thought, wow, this is great. I can teach students at UWA here in Western Australia. I can teach them about a local innovation hero that yeah. managed to make And I thought, well, you know, maybe in some fashion um, my knowledge of innovation could parlay to help this situation, to maybe yeah. help accelerate uh, the acceptance of low carb because the, the parallels are just too uncanny. So in the Barry Marshall case, he proved that a, sim- uh, that a simple antibiotic dose would cure this disease mm-hmm. and the previous um, treatment was – radical surgery on the stomach. Yes. How long were people still doing that surgery after he won the Nobel Prize and proved it without a shadow of a doubt? By the time he'd won the Nobel Prize, the change had happened. Okay. Um, but uh, that was normal. That was like a, it was a, over a, a decade look, it was, and, and look, uh, it was also Robin Warren, I should should mention, was his <laughs> sure. co-researcher. Yes. Um, but um, um, they just had a devil of a time getting it accepted. It was many, many years from his discovery mm. until it was accepted. And then it was many, many years for the clinicians, the doctors and the GPs, to understand that this, you know, you could go and get it, you could be tested for, for heliobacter and given that the, the the bug was proven to be there, you then just had to go on to the, the course of antibiotics. Yeah. So it wasn't until um, the early 2000s that this really became uh, accepted as a, as a therapy and it took a long time for the clinicians and I think we've got the same thing happening. It's a really is, a, is history does repeat itself. Ima- um, imagine being the last surgeon who did that last surgery what almost twenty years after it was shown to be pointless. Well, yeah, and and the 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 parallels are are all there. I think Barry Marshall tells a story that uh, he goes to a conference and his wife um, goes on a, on a on a partners tour with all the other partners of the, yeah. of the wives and girlfriends, wives yep. and girlfriends, <laughs> and 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 and, and uh, on that tour she overheard someone say, "Oh, look, it's a wonderful conference. My husband's really looking forward to it." But 
oh, there's this, there's this really uh, crazy person called Barry Marshall. Mm. Um, and, <laughs> and her ears picked up. <laughs> and her ears picked up. So the same kinds of um, disbelief and, uh, uh, and um, you know, uh, uh, troubles that that professor tim noakes has had and yeah. others have had yeah. you know this this was all this was all has all happened before and right. um uh, and you know in my talk um at, at low carb i actually go back and pull up a quote from machiavelli from mm-hmm. 1513 yeah um that you know could have could well have been written today about the um the innovators of low carb yeah um, it's 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 just a a common problem because it's human nature yeah yeah, it goes against the flow, and it's it, it it and it and there are people with reputations and egos who who have those bound up in their existing the existing uh, dogma and their existing treatments and it, it, it's that it's that and 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 as, and as the quote from Machiavelli goes on to explain that the structures organise the you know the revenue streams organise and and the beliefs organise around. The revenue streams and and pe- the people that have something to gain, mm. they also have a lot to lose, and so you know, right. they fight hard to hang on to hang mm. hang on to those beliefs. Um, and um, the people who might support you haven't yet had experience, and it's very telling that if you look at most of the major people that have pushed this forward, even yourself, mm. uh, me to some extent, um, it's because we've had experience of it. Yeah, it's, um, a, it's a lived experience. Yeah. Is how, what got me here is uh, if I had not been diabetic, I would have never gone low carb, I suspect. Well, Machiavelli goes on to say that um, that you have lukewarm supporters because people haven't had experience of the innovation mm. that's being put. Right. So um, Professor Noakes, for example, having type 2 diabetes, mm. If you see some of the leading doctors have either um, had diabetes or, you know, Jay Workman, for example. Right. Um, uh, 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 Troy Stapleton. Troy Stapleton. Mm-hmm. The, the, the doctors that have been the proponents, uh, generally, it's because they, they have some history, someone in their family or themselves that's lost weight or, or um, uh, helped reverse their diabetes yeah. uh, using low carb. And, and so then they've had that experience and they become stronger supporters. And, and as I said, you know, um, Machiavelli describes this process mm-hmm. um, 500 years 500 ago. 500 years ago. And you actually made an interesting comment at uh, during the presentation about Andy Grove, who's a, a, a well-known in my field of computer programming. He was the CEO of Intel. And he made an interesting observation um, about a strategic dissonance. Tell us about that and how that affects the existing organisations like the Dietitians Associations. Yeah, well... Um uh, what what became apparent to me was that when you have um, when you have this case where dietitians and I, I gave some information about a particular president of the US uh, Dietitians Association, Eat Right, mm-hmm. um, who was saying we have to stop these disruptors. And when you talk about disruption to an industry, um, you start to think about the theories of Clayton Christensen mm-hmm. uh, and and also uh, Andy Grove had a very useful uh, technique that he used to manage Intel through some some fairly major strategic changes that right. he got right. Yeah. Um, and, and the typical, the, the, the problem, of course, with disruption is that what's made you successful in the past 
is not what will make you successful in the future. Sure. And yet, yet companies hold on to the revenue streams and and hold. It's it's, it's you know, uh, like I said about um, people who fight you. It's the people that fight you that are holding on to their revenue streams. And 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 what people that have managed through disruption have worked out is you have to let go of your revenue streams. Yeah. And. Uh, Andy Grove was faced with a number of these, and he came up with a very um, useful um, piece of uh, theory around strategic dissonance. And that basically is you notice that there's a tension within your own firm or within the industry, and you use that tension to diagnose and figure out if you're really at one of these points. Because if you keep doing what you've always done... You go down the gurgler. Yeah. Um, whereas if you can make the change to what the what will make you successful in the in the new paradigm, yeah. um, you um, you can thrive. You move up to a new energy you level. Move up yeah. to new, yeah. And and it's if you think of mathematics, it's an inflection point. Right. So yeah. a, a, you know, a parabola mm-hmm. being a bit engineering, a parabola goes down again. Yeah. Uh, whereas an inflection point sort of turns around and goes back up. Yeah. Um, and he was measuring that that strain between uh, what what you are doing and what you should be doing. Correct. His the thesis was that you could measure that strain existing within the organisation trying to protect its existing revenue streams and identify that as being um, the point of change, the inflection point in, in order to, to correct and follow where the business is really going. That, that's spot on. And, and what uh, the, the parallel that uh, I, I can see and that I drew um, was that uh, dietitians resisting the change mm. was probably strategic dissonance. And, I, yeah, uh, yeah. and, and then went on to talk about, about that. So, uh, and, and look, a, a funny, a funny, well, not really a funny side, an ironic aside is that um, Andy Grove uh, suffered, I think it was from Parkinson's disease before he passed away in 2016. Right. Um, but his last big um, uh, effort uh, be- before he passed away was, was, to, was to basically reform the US health system. <laughs> uh, and he, he was uh, working very solidly before he passed away mm. on this task of how you change the health system. Now, the interesting thing that, again, my talk pulled up was that whether it was Andy Grove or, or others, mm. um, there's been a tremendous amount of uh, investment by Silicon Valley into changing the way the health system works. And I yeah. think that's, that's the... Well, it's a digital disruption now, isn't it? It, it is. And look, we've been through, um, many industries have been disrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Airbnb's just disrupted the hotel yeah. space. Uber, Uber disrupted the taxi exactly. industry. Exactly. Yeah. So... Um, and and actually, it goes back a lot further than that. Uh, mm. Back to the back to the late nineties, right? The dot com era. The dot com era, um, but even back to ninety five, mm. um, people were talking about um, cyberization and the right. fact that everything that could be digitally presented would be, and we'd have a, a cyber world, a cyberspace. You know, yeah. that's where the word comes from. Mm. Uh, and and what we've seen progressively is that more and more information in the real world is reflected into cyberspace yeah including in the in the health realm all of our health data medical records yeah. medical records health mm. data yeah. um and uh so in some ways it's a it's a radical change in another way you can see it as a progression much as we never used to have the fact that the um the, the restaurant down there wasn't represented where that was in cyberspace. Well, now yeah. you go to Google Maps and there's the restaurant, yep. there's the you reviews. You can go to its webpage and you can order some food. Exactly. So the physical world is being 
mirrored in the the digital world mm. uh, we'll call it cyberspace and yeah the next cab off the rank if you like after after uber and airbnb mm. appears to be the the health industry right well that's like a sixth of the u.s economy the the health industry and that's so that's a massive target and i, I know with my from personal my personal experience is that i i had a a, a cat scan done uh, that where I was diagnosed with a fatty liver, um, and then a CAT scan done after I was diagnosed with a fatty liver, and both of those are online. And when somebody in the low carb community, in fact, it was Troy Stapleton who was here at the presentation, who's a radiologist and a low carb mm. and a type one diabetic, uh, when somebody asked, "Oh, can I have a look at that?" I was able to just add him to my to my medical uh, the, the people who are allowed to look at it, mm. and all of a sudden he could then look at my. At one CAT scan that was done in Batemans Bay and another one that was done in Canberra, do a comparison and 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 confirm for me the the, the diagnosis. So that you know, that that's that's really a patient centred way of doing things. Where in the old school, you know, traditionally we'd go to a clinic and that clinic would involve specialists in in our treatment. And now what's happening is it, it all appears to be turning back in on the patient. Well. It is, and I think that um, you know, there, there's a lot of people that laugh when you say n equals one. Mm. You know, so you know, you, you you go onto social media and you you say, well, you know, look, I uh, I cut out sugar and cut out carbs, and, yeah. and and had this wonderful result. And they come back and say, well, you know, that's, that's great, but that's an n equals one. That's an anecdote. <laughs> well, we, we know there's a lot more, but but that's the change. The yeah. change is to focus on people as an individual, on individual data, and it's it's along with. Just putting the health data online is not the full extent of the of the, the change that we're facing. So the um, the interesting thing is that the extent of, of, of this innovation of, of digital health it isn't just about putting our stuff online. It fundamentally changes the way um, we can do research mm -hmm. because essentially we all become part of one big study. Yeah. Um, well, and if one is important, when you're the one. Well, yeah, of course. And, and, and I, in my presentation, I showed how, well, you know, you, you can conclude that uh, low fat and low carb are the same from the diet fit study, but mm. um, uh, that's no help to you if you're the person that gained 10 kilos on the low fat diet, mm. whereas if you could have been on the low carb diet, you might have lost 20 kilos. Indeed. Um, so it's um, personalized medicine and precision medicine. Mm-hmm. Is something that um, um, you know is coming. That's the way that that's the way it's all headed, and that has quite a big fundamental change for the evidence base that that dietetics currently works off. Right, uh, because at the moment it's based around around this idea that you aggregate up the information of systematic review, mm -hmm. and then that information informs how you treat a population. Right. And, of course, there is some customization, but mm. it's turning, you know, not to say that we'll forget information from systematic reviews, mm -hmm. but it's almost inverting that pyramid and saying at the top is um, the, the case studies and finding similar people that have been through this. And yeah. in, in many ways, that's what folks uh, like us have done in going online and mm. finding People, when, when, when I first started my low-carb journey, I went into the forums and I would find people that were quite similar to me yeah. and ask them, well, what did you do? Mm. And, and if you like, that's where 
the whole digital health thing is headed. Yeah, well, it, it's really it's an opportunity for data mining. I mean, we've got large amounts of data from uh, from uh, treatments over a large population, and we can actually we can go into that and we can say, okay, an individual through the computer can can put in their their criteria. And uh, the system can then do a do a, a search and f- try and find other individuals who have the same starting criteria, and then work out what treatments did and did not work in their case, and then suggest a, a, an appropriate treatment. That's all artificial intelligence. That doesn't require, you know, a, a physician to to. Yeah, although I think I think there's always a role for a professional to to interpret to interpret that, pro- sure. that properly yeah. and make sure, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it's it's appropriate. But yeah, look, that's. Um, that in the uh, longer term is mm. is the way things are headed, and I think that's that's exciting because you know we've all felt we're we're n equals ones, and all mm. we've been told well that you know you're now disregarded. It's great. Look, though, people always say it's great you've had that success, but um, you know your evidence doesn't matter, and mm. it's nice to know that uh, in the future all of our evidence. Will matter. It'll matter uh, to somebody with exactly the same, same starting yeah. conditions that I had. Yeah, yeah. So this is really, um, you know, in in, um, in my experience, this is uh, quite a fundamental change for the mm. whole health system. But it's it's positive, and it's it's something that's occurring as different diets. So the paleo diet, the low the low carb diet, the keto diet, mm-hmm. um, the Atkins diet, um, uh, all, all those low carb variants, as well as Low fat, Mediterranean, uh, all of the other eating styles may in fact be appropriate for yeah. for different people. But you know the the sense I get, at least in Australia and to some extent in the US, is people aren't being um, aren't being directed to the right diet for them at the moment. Yeah. Well, that's that was a fascinating talk, and it's been a fascinating interview. Thank you very much for spending time with us. Not a problem at all, Richard. Any time. Thank you. Could you save your due for a little? Yeah, you know, one thing that uh, uh, I liked is when he said something like, you're going to go down the Googler or the Gurgler. <laughs> the Googler. <laughs> you go down the Googler. That means like down the toilet, right? Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly. <laughs> I love listening to you Aussies talk. I learn new things every time. Right. <laughs> Outstanding. No, it was great. And uh, I particularly know what that's like in the technology sector. Right. You know, when some fundamental change comes out and you're just sort of, you have to do an about face and and scramble. But the problem is, of course, if you've got lots of money and people's jobs invested in in something, you're 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 loathe to change. Yeah. 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 It's momentum. It's very difficult to uh, turn around an ocean liner. It's much easier to turn around a little sailboat. But yeah. You know, sometimes you have to turn around the ocean liner if you all of a sudden you're heading towards an iceberg. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I really enjoyed that. So thanks mm. for that. And no uh, are you peckish? Yeah, I'm a bit puckish too. <laughs> <laughs> all right, then. Let's place. Uh, all right, well, then let's share some recipes. <laughs> what have you got, Cal? <laughs> Well, I'm going to share the recipe that I did on Carl's Keto Kitchen last week. Nice. Which uh, I have to give you a lot of credit for, for giving me the idea of how to make these chicken skins. This is crispy chicken skin nachos. Mm. And you can see the recipe at nachos.2keto.com, of course. Nice. So this is crispy chicken skin nachos with pork. Mm -hmm. The key to these nachos isn't the meat, although that took the most time. I actually made a 
uh, a pork butt uh, slow cooked. And that in of itself is just a, you know, a roasted meat. You can do that every, everywhere. So I'm not going to go into what I did with that. But the chicken skins are the star of these nachos. And this technique is something that you mentioned to me. I can't remember if it was on a show where we were just talking, but taking chicken skins and using fat from bacon, like if you make a tray of bacon. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. You make a tray of bacon, then take the bacon off and then reuse the parchment and put chicken skins down flat on them, salt them, put another one on top, and then put some bricks on top of that to, to flatten them out. And did you try them? Yes, I did, and they were amazing. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> they were amazing. So these were cooked at uh, 350 degrees Fahrenheit for about 25, 30 minutes. They were really crispy. Then what I did was put them on a fresh piece of parchment back in the oven and use the convection setting. Right. So it was blowing hot air mm-hmm. you know, around them, and that crisped them up quite a bit. Mm. And then I also made a cheese sauce. Of course, I, I figured I wasn't done with cheese sauce yet. You know, <laughs> that's just you're not sick of them yet. <laughs> no. Nah. So I, I used a combination of pepper jack and smoked cheddar, and that was really great. And of course, I used the sodium citrate too. Of course. And um, the reason I did that is because when I made queso down at RD86 a couple of weeks ago, mm. and we used fresh vegetables, as soon as I put those fresh veggies in, the queso kind of seized up. Ooh. Yeah. And I think it was just water. So the yeah, cheese it- sauce with the sodium citrate is a little bit fickle. It can separate, you know, it can, uh, it can separate the fat from the proteins if you're not careful. You know what it probably is, is uh, you put tomatoes in, right? Yeah, maybe. So it's probably the acidity of the tomatoes would split the cheese. So no, I didn't put tomatoes in that. I didn't. Mm, okay. um, but I did have fresh peppers and onions. Right. Yeah, the onions could have done it as well. Yeah, onions probably would have done it. Well, anyway, bef- before I had cheated and just used a little salsa, mm, you know, and swirled yeah. that in, and that didn't seem to be a problem. Okay. But probably cool. because it was so so dead, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I just figured if I get the flavor in the cheese already with pepper jack and smoked cheddar, that worked out right. great. Nice. And, you know, I might as well talk about this this pork butt, too. Um, mm. We made a sofrito, which is a, a basically a Latin, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese um, sauce that you make by taking uh, vegetables, fresh vegetables, uh, aromatic vegetables, like onions and peppers and garlic and and you you saute them in butter and then put them in a blender right yeah, it's like the italian version of the mirepoix right yeah exactly so to that we added two dried guajillo peppers that were reconstituted seeded and we also added a lot of herbs like a cup of fresh cilantro a cup of fresh mint a cup of fresh parsley uh, so cumin, some chili powder, some lime juice, olive oil. Of course, I'm giving you the side eye now because you've added cilantro to this. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah, I, I can eat cilantro. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we also <laughs> wanted to sweeten it up a little, so I just put in a tablespoon of swerve, and that actually really did a a, a good number on it. Mm. And then, of course, uh, some salt. So we covered the pork butt with the sofrito and put it in a roasting pan with a cup of chicken stock in the bottom and did a slow cook on that, you know, five hours at uh, mm. 250, 275. Yeah. I love slow cooked pork. Mm. So good, isn't it? Yeah. 
And then, of course, to assemble the nachos, what I did was I put the chicken skins down, then put the cheese on them. And because I wanted the, the meat and stuff to stick to the nachos, right? So, the yeah. meat, the, the cheese sauce is actually kind of like a glue. <laughs> <laughs> so, things don't like fall off. It's a construction off. project, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we chopped up some fresh tomato, jalapeno pepper, some fresh peppers of different colors, and a little bit of raw onion. And again, decorated with a little cilantro. Sorry, Richard. But uh, <laughs> they were amazing. And amazing. the look on Chef Robert's face when he took a bite of that was just classic. He was, he, he, he was so impressed that he was like swearing on camera. He, He's like, this is so <laughs> effing good. Oh, geez. Did I say that? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, oh, shit. I said effing. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. All right, that's what I got. What do you got? Well, I'm going to do an easy one today. And this is actually a technique of processing vegetables so that you don't have to cook them for a long time, Okay. specifically for garlic, but you could do it with other vegetables. As you probably know, if you take a clove of garlic and put it straight in your mouth, it's going to be hot, it's going to be really spicy, yes. it's going to overwhelm your palate. Yep. If you take the same clove of garlic and you roast it in a garlic roaster, mm. it's like a little ceramic device uh, that you put in the oven and you roast for like an hour um, at a low and slow temperature, the, the flavor is mellowed out. And you can take that clove of garlic and you can chew on it and it's like a, a mellow, delicious version yep. of All the, the sting hot, goes away. Yeah, garlic. So, but most of us just buy garlic as in fresh form or minced in oil, and uh, and and we add it straight to our our food. But we have to cook it through to be able to develop the flavors because you know that fresh garlic. That if you give somebody fresh garlic in their meal, they're gonna yeah. they're gonna give you the side eye. That's so, right. <laughs> um, so so the trick is to roast roast your garlic. Well. I found uh, some garlic at a local market which had been smoked. Now, smoked, yeah. So, smoked garlic is still roasted. It's hot roasted. It's hot smoked in a smoker. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, you just get a whole tray of bulbs of garlic. Just fill the tray with bulbs of garlic. Put on like a mesquite smoke or something and give it a good smoking for for, uh, maybe probably two rounds of the the smoking. So, uh, you're hot smoking it in a a, a, – Either on a, a barbecue, you could put them on a barbecue with a smoking box, or if you've got a hot smoke like we have, do it in that. And once you've smoked the garlic, it lasts forever. I mean, oh really? Yeah, we have some in the bottom of our fridge that's been there for like three months, and it's still delicious. Wow! And when you take the the clove out of the the out of the bowl, if you just squeeze the clove, it squeezes out like toothpaste. Yeah, you know, so you just you don't even have to peel it. You just squeeze it <laughs> over a meal. So so tonight for dinner we had um, we had chicken. We've I've, I've done bag chicken before where I um, I have skin on thighs in a bag sous vide. I cook it in the sous vide and then I freeze it. And so so basically I just I just fried these uh, chicken thighs up. And the juices from the bag, which, you know, you could just use chicken stock, I just squeezed some of this garlic into that juice, yeah. a little bit of cream, mm. and then blitzed it with a blender, and it was like the best white gravy you have ever tasted. Wow. Oh, so good. Anyway, so that's my recipe. Is The recipe is a technique, and the technique is roasting garlic in a hot smoker. 
So there you go. That's awesome. I can't wait to do that. <laughs> I've never you need had to get yourself smoked a hot garlic. Smoker. Yes, no, you yes. Need to get that's, a hot smoker. That's going to happen this year. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Well, that's a show, my friend. Yeah, of course, if you have anything that you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something you don't agree with, some more research you found to support or refute anything that we've said, send it by email to dudes at 2ketodudes.com or post it on our website. And you can follow us on Twitter, Twitch, and Instagram at 2ketodudes. Make sure to use the hashtag 2ketodudes. And of course, if you want to join the free ketogenic forum, it's forum.2keto.com. And if useless swag is your fancy, t-shirts, coffee mugs, and all that other junk, Head over to gear.2keto.com. And if you want a shot at getting some of that swag for free, join the 2 Keto Dudes fan club. You'll be eligible to win something in every show. Go to fanclub.2keto.com. And if you feel like supporting our forums and all the podcasts we're producing, including 2 Keto Dudes, Keto Woman with Daisy Brackenhall, and the Obesity Code podcast with Jason Fung and Megan Ramos, think about making a monthly pledge on our Patreon page at patreon.2keto.com or just hit the donate button on our website at www.2ketodudes.com or just go to donate.2keto.com You can also see all of our podcasts and other videos on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com And if you haven't already, go leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's how new people get to know about what we do. 2 Keto Dudes is brought to you by 2 Keto LLC who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And Richard... Keep calm, keto on, and fast when you can. Yeah, keep calm, keto on, Carl, and keto fest whenever you can, (laughs) at least once a year. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see you there. And we'll see you next time on Two Two Keto Keto Dudes. Dudes.